Uh, thank you to Joey and to Nathan and to the elders of Restoration for the privilege of standing in this pulpit uh, and trying to communicate God's word to you. It's my prayer that Christ would be our focus, uh, that the distractions that so often take us up in life would be faint, uh, and that we would fully delight in him. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have the privilege now of hearing our God speak to us through his word. Uh, what a kindness uh, from him that he does not leave us uh, without hearing his will for us, and his love for us. Let's bear this in mind as we open our hearts to him and open his word together. I wonder if you have ever felt like the Lord has tested you, like he's tested you and he's tested your faith. Uh, maybe uh, a relationship has been stripped from you, or, or maybe a relationship has been so broken and damaged, wounded, that you wonder if it's beyond repair. Uh, perhaps career hopes and dreams have been dismantled, and you don't know what to do. Or maybe something like cancer has crept in and seemed to jeopardize everything. Perhaps you have suffered some sort of financial difficulty and trial. Whatever the situation it may be for you, I wonder if you've, if you've ever had that sense or had that feeling. I, I wonder if the Lord is testing me. God, are you testing my faith? Michael Green once recounted the story that when the um, Union Pacific Railroad was under construction, an elaborate trestle bridge was constructed in order to connect St. Louis and California. And before that bridge was opened for commercial use, the construction engineer, kind of the supervisor of the project, wanted to test its strength. And so he loaded a train with extra cars and equipment and doubled its normal payload. And the train was driven out to the middle of the bridge, where it was to remain there for an entire day. And one of the construction workers actually complained to the construction engineer. He said, are you trying to break the bridge? And the engineer replied, no. I'm trying to prove that this bridge is unbreakable. So when God tests our faith, he is not trying to break us. He is trying to prove to us that he and his promises to us are unbreakable. You can drive all of the train cars of your life out onto him. He can bear their weight. So in the passage that we're considering together this morning, God, he tests Abraham's faith. He asks him to sacrifice his one and only most beloved son. And amazingly, Abraham obeys. And at just the right time, God provides the true sacrifice. Here we learn that when God tests our faith, when he tests your faith, you should trust him to provide. You can trust him in the present. You can trust him in the midst of the test. And you can trust him with the future, with the tests that are yet to come. You can put your faith in him because he will prove himself faithful, as we've sung together this morning. This is what we have the privilege of considering together this morning. So, yes, open your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Genesis 22. We're going to unpack this chapter in three sections under three headings. Number one, trust God when he tests your faith. We're going to see that in verses one and two. Trust God when he tests your faith. Number two, 
Trust God to provide in the present. That'll be the large middle section, verses 3 to 19. And then finally, thirdly, trust God to provide for the future. Verses 20 to 24. Trust God to provide for the future. I'll repeat that outline as we make our way through the text. But beloved, here is the sermon in a sentence. When your faith is tested, trust the Lord to provide. When your faith is tested, trust the Lord to provide. Let's begin with our first point. Trust God when he tests your faith. Follow along now as I read Genesis 22, just verses 1 to 2 for now. Genesis 22, verses 1 to 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now notice, friends, these verses, they open with a reminder of God's history of faithfulness. You see him in those words, after these things. With those words, we are being called to remember God's history of dealings with Abraham. In the last chapter especially. So in Genesis chapter 21, God made good on his promise to send Abraham and Sarah a son. God kept his promise to them just as he said, in the way that he said, at the time that he said. God proved his faithfulness to his promises in giving them Isaac. It's after these things, after the giving of Isaac, that we're now looking at this chapter. It's after giving him Isaac that God is now asking Abraham to give him up. It's after these things, after God keeping his promises and proving in Abraham's very history that God is trustworthy, that he tested Abraham. The test, brother or sister, that you are in, God has prepared you for by your own history. You have your own, actually, after these things. What if you realize that? Beloved, when your faith is tested, remember God's history of faithfulness in your life. His faithfulness to Abraham. His faithfulness to the people of Israel. His faithfulness to you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God led you to the day of the test, and he prepared you for it. He will not give you beyond what you can bear. And God, in this passage we see, he's actually dropping hints to Abraham here. Hints that he can be trusted. As he tests Abraham's faith and calling him to offer up his son Isaac, he says these words at the end of verse 2. Do you see them again? Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This call to sacrifice Isaac, in these words, is a mirror actually of God's initial call to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. So in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. In the very words that God chooses, in giving this command to Abraham, he is dropping a hint to Abraham that he can be trusted. The hint that God is giving Abraham there in verse 2 is simply this. You trusted me before with your life, with your entire life, changing the direction of your life. You can trust me again with your son's life. And good fathers do this kind of thing all the time. Right? We, we pile the kids in the car and we don't tell them where we're going. We start driving. And of course they start asking, Dad, where are we going? What are we doing? We say, you know, 
just take a moment and think about when we've done this before, right? When we've piled you into the car and have not told you where we're going. What have we done? Oh, we went for ice cream or we went for Krispy Kreme. And of course, dad will say, now I'm not going to tell you, but you need to trust me. We're going to make our way there. See, this is what God the Father is doing even in Abraham's life. He's dropping a hint that he can be trusted. The Lord God is calling Abraham to follow him to the land of Moriah, to a mountain he does not know, and to do something he almost certainly doesn't understand. And yet the Lord is dropping this massive hint that if Abraham trusted him before, he can trust him here, in this moment, in this very difficult moment. Remembering God's history of faithfulness might help you to recognize his hints and encourage you to trust him. But you need to realize this. God wants your heart. You realize that? That's what this test is all about. It's all about Abraham's heart. You need to realize that about this test and your test. It's a test. It's, it's not a temptation. Uh, James 1.13 teaches us that God does not tempt anyone. Now, some translations will unhelpfully use the word tempt here in our text. But I don't think that's the sense of the text. I think the ESV is rightly translated the passage I read from, translation I read from, rightly rendered here, God tested Abraham. What God is doing is he's testing Abraham's trust. And God has the right to test his people's faith. We should also be clear that God is opposed to human sacrifice. He prohibits human sacrifice in Leviticus 18, verse 21, and Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. So in this command to sacrifice Isaac, what is God asking Abraham to do? He's asking to do something perplexing, isn't it? I mean, sometimes when we read passages like this, or even experience perplexing circumstances in our lives, we're, we're kind of left with wonder. All we're left to do is to say with Paul, in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. They are past finding out. Or we say with Isaiah 55 verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways, and God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. Sometimes what God commands is perplexing, and we shouldn't be surprised that our finite minds don't understand everything that our infinite God is up to or what he's doing. Sometimes we're going to be perplexed by what God does, but as Genesis 22 will bear out, God can be trusted. When God tests the metal of your faith, you can be sure that his test will touch on something that is very precious to you. God can be trusted with what is most precious to you. Don't you think that Isaac was precious? To Abraham? I mean, he, he most certainly was, and God knew it. Now look at the language of verse 2 again. The Lord said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Abraham lost Ishmael as he was sent out of his house. Now, would he lose Isaac too? Would he lose his only son? God's not denying that um, Abraham had another son in Ishmael. What God is communicating is that as far as the covenant promises are concerned, Abraham only has one son, one and only son, Isaac, his most beloved son. God knows exactly what he's asking of Abraham. And he knows exactly what he's asking of you. Do you know why? 
Because God wants you to know that he should be most precious. He should be our heart's greatest love. If he asks you, are you willing to give up everything and everyone to him? Are you willing to go all in on him? Do you remember what our Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26? Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus was communicating that our love for him must outstrip all other earthly loves. If we have to choose between our Lord and earthly loves, we unreservedly choose our Lord. We lay down all of our earthly loves for the Lord Jesus because he laid down his life for us. Does Jesus have your heart? Does he have all of it? He is infinitely worthy of everything that you have, everything that you are, and everything that you love. You should be ready to give up everything to the Lord, for he gave up his son for you. In many ways, what we see in this text is a type and shadow of the salvation that God has accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why God, though God may test you like Abraham, he actually will not test you in the same way as Abraham. You will not be called to sacrifice your children on an altar. This is a unique event in redemptive history in which God is foreshadowing the sacrifice of his son. You will not be tested in this way, but your faith will almost certainly be tested. And you can be sure that God can be trusted. I want us to turn now and consider our second point. Trust God to provide in the present. And as we do, follow along as I read Genesis chapter 23, verses 9, sorry, verse 3 to 19. Pick up there in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you 
fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord Yahweh will provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord Yahweh, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. These verses are emotionally gut-wrenching, aren't they? I mean, after we are introduced to the test, we immediately see Abraham obey, get on the way without delay. Verse 3, you see it there? Abraham rose early in the morning. Abraham takes everything with him that he needs to keep God's command. There's not a single hesitating step in Abraham's path. He knows his duty, and he diligently is marching on. Beloved. When the Lord tests your faith, he may call you to publicly testify. That's exactly what Abraham does. In faith, Abraham tells the young men with him there that he and his son are going over there. They're going to worship and they are going, they are going to come back here. Whatever lies ahead for Abraham and Isaac, Abraham knows this much. Isaac is the son that God promised. Isaac is the down payment of the offspring who would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Genesis 15, 5. Whatever else happens on that mountain is in the hands of the Lord. Abraham and Isaac are coming back. Abraham is believing and taking God at his word of promise concerning Isaac. He's taking it to the bank. And so that must mean that somehow, in some way, though a sacrifice has to be offered, he and Isaac will Worship and come back alive. Faith shows itself in obedience. Through his obedience, Abraham showed us his faith. Obedience makes faith visible. I mean, this is James' point in James chapter 2, verses 12 or 18 to 22. You can read it later on. Real faith is made visible through obedience. James points out Abraham's willingness to offer up Isaac on the altar as a sterling example of faith that obeys, faith that works itself out in life. If you'll read that passage, you'll see that James says that Abraham's faith was justified. That is to say, it was vindicated and shown to be real through his obedient works. This is why uh, Martin Luther uh, said that faith, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It will be accompanied with good works, with obedience unto God. This is what is happening with Abraham. What he believed about God propelled him to obey God. Does your faith do that? Does it lead you to put one foot in front of another? 
and get on the way and obey. As it's often been said, obedience is not the root of faith. Rather, it is the fruit of faith. We do not obey in order to be saved. We obey because we have been saved. Faith obeys the commands of God and it does so publicly. Remember, Abraham, he's testifying to these young men that he and Isaac would come back. Beloved, when God tests your faith, he may make that test public, very public, painfully public. Maybe that you don't want it to be. Abraham, he's he's not lying to these young men. Instead, he's laying his hopes on God, like those trains were laid on that bridge. Real faith, faith that shows itself in obedience, is not overcome by the size of the obstacles in front of you. Abraham, do you realize this? He is facing the obstacle of death. And he believes that God is bigger than death. So he keeps obeying. I mean, do do you believe that God is bigger than death? Are you going to obey even though death may loom over you? Are you going to obey if anything short of death looms over you? God is worthy of your faith. And Abraham shows us that God is worthy of such faith. In verses 6 to 8, Abraham and Isaac, they're all alone. The, The narrative kind of slows down and we feel each step. It's kind of a march up the mountain. Twice in these verses, we read the words, so they both, so they went, both of them together. Verse six, and then in verse eight, so they went, both of them together. And as they go, we see Abraham take the wood in verse six. We kind of feel him lay it on his son, Isaac. And with this, we're realizing Isaac is no small boy. I mean, yes, verse five uses the word boy, but your translation probably has a footnote down there that indicates it can also be translated young man. The term can have kind of affectionate connotations. And that's why it's also kind of probably rendered boy in our translations. But scholars often estimate that Isaac's probably at least 18 at this point in time. I mean, I think that seems to be very possible. Whatever the case may be, whatever his age may be, Isaac is old enough and strong enough to carry a stack of wood, enough for a burnt offering, up a mountain. I mean, that's got to be something. He has to have some strength, some maturity to a degree, right? And Abraham has had years to grow in love for his son. Years to laugh and love as a father. But don't forget what God has commanded him to do. He's commanded Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering, verse 2. And as they march up that mountain, you, you must know that rolling around in Abraham's mind is this command to kill his son and light him on fire. This is a burnt offering. This is shocking and unimaginable to every loving parent and every reader of this text, I think. Isaac, he sees his father walking with fire and a knife, and he's, he's putting the pieces together. He, he has evidently seen his father worship before. He's, he's seen what takes place in a burnt offering. And so he asks there at the end of verse 7, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where indeed is the lamb who will be slain? In Abraham's mere reply in verse 8 is, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Look at what faith believes. Look at who faith believes. Faith believes in God and faith depends upon God to provide. Faith rests everything upon God. And I think that's what we're seeing Abraham do here. And the words of verse 8, they're almost redundant. God will provide for himself. Abraham is keeping his hopes fixed on the God of heaven. 
when your faith is tested and your path is perplexing, keep your hopes fixed on the God of heaven. Keep depending upon God to provide. Abraham has learned through the years that God keeps his promises in a way that shows his exclusive power and provision. He gained Isaac not through the help of a sinful relationship with Hagar, but through depending upon the supernatural opening of a dead womb in Sarah. God provided Isaac's life. God will provide Isaac's sacrifice. And the truth is is that Isaac is a sinner, just like we're all sinners. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The proper payment for our working in sin is eternal death in hell. And just like we deserve to die under God's judgment and wrath, so Isaac deserved to die under God's judgment and wrath. And Abraham, he believes that God will provide a substitute. Abraham believes that God will provide an acceptable offering for worship. This would have been an important lesson for the people of Israel. The first recipients of this book, right? The people of Israel were making their way through the wilderness and hoping to enter into the promised land. They were known as the children of Abraham. They would need to have faith like Abraham that God would provide an acceptable substitute and sacrifice for their sin. Not just throughout the course of their sojourning and life in the land, but they would need to believe and depend upon God that one day he would provide a once and for all sacrifice for sin. Indeed, this is the trajectory of the rest of the Old Testament. Trusting God to provide that sinless sacrifice. All that God asks of his people He provides for his people. Christian, remember that. All that he asks of you, he provides for you because he loves you. This is what faith does. It depends wholly and completely upon God to provide. And faith also believes that God can raise the dead. Verses 9 and 10 take us through the full course of Abraham's obedience. And Moses, he kind of narrates each step of the sacrificial preparation. Though the text doesn't announce it, I think it's safe to assume that Isaac was a willing sacrifice. Remember, he's strong enough to carry a stack of wood up a mountain. And Abraham is at least a number of years past 100 years old. I'm 40. I can barely, you know, take my 14-year-old boy right now, right? (laughs) I might not be able to, but Abraham's 100 years old. The only way for Isaac to be bound and for his father to lay him on that wood He was a willing sacrifice, ready to do his father's will. And here, Isaac, he pictures for us the full obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ to do our heavenly father's will, even unto death, willing to be bound to wood. What kind of faith had to be in Abraham's heart to take each of these steps and to finally raise the knife up with the full intention, in the words of verse 10, to slaughter his son? his only son, the one whom he loves. We read about Abraham's faith in Hebrews 11. Listen to these words from verses 17 to 19 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered... In other words, he believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
Do you hear what the divinely inspired author of Hebrews says about Abraham's faith in this moment? He tells us what kind of faith Abraham has in his heart. It was the kind of faith that believed that God was able to raise the dead. Abraham was willing to kill his son because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. The writer of the Hebrews says in verse 19 of chapter 11 that figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back from the dead. That phrase, figuratively speaking, in the original language, communicates the idea that God was typifying. He was foreshadowing something yet to come in the future. Since Isaac was as good as dead, when God stays the hand of Abraham, it is as if Isaac had experienced a return to life. He experienced something like a resurrection. What happened with Isaac was only a partial picture. The fullness of what is pictured and patterned in our text lay ahead for the true one and only most beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is pictured and patterned here in Genesis 2 lay ahead for Jesus because upon that son, God the Father would not stay his hand. He would let his judgment and wrath fall upon him. God, he stayed Abraham's hand in verse 11 precisely because Isaac was not the son who needed to die for our sins. And because Abraham passed the test, his obedient, dependent, resurrection-believing faith proved was proved in his fear of God and his willingness to sacrifice his son. And this is the very nature of faith. Faith fears God. It reverences God. That's what fear means. Faith entrusts everything and everyone into God's loving hands. Abraham showed God his faith through his obedience and dependence, and God saw his faith. And look at verse 12 again. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Christian, you can be sure that God sees your faith. Day by day, he sees the proof of your faith and he rejoices in it. He is glorified by it. Like Abraham, don't withhold your most precious loves from him. Remember that God did not withhold his son from you. Remember scripture, remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Remember Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isaac was spared, but Jesus was not. That's because Jesus was the substitute that God provided. And faith looks to the substitute that God has provided. Verses 13 and 14 are glorious. Look at him there again. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram. Just as Abraham believed and told his son that the Lord would provide, so the Lord did. That's why Abraham names this place the the place of the Lord Yahweh will provide. And look at at the last sentence of verse 13. Read it carefully. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. You see, here was Isaac's substitute for his sin. Here is the true sacrifice and of a more precious type too. God provided in it a way even greater than Abraham had predicted. 
Perhaps even more than Isaac in this passage, this ram points us to Jesus Christ. Isaac did not die, but the ram did. The Lord Jesus did. Like Isaac, Jesus carried his wood. But unlike Isaac, Jesus died upon that wood. Like Isaac, Jesus walked up a mountain. But unlike Isaac, Jesus died upon Mount Calvary. And he died bearing the judgment of God instead of his people. In the stead of his people. You deserve to die. But Jesus has died in your place. This is the central truth of the Bible. If you are to be saved from sin and spared from the wrath of God, then you must look to and believe upon the substitute that God has provided. You can't look anywhere else. He doesn't accept any sin-stained substitute. Fallen men like Isaac. He will only accept the sinless substitute of his son, Jesus Christ. God provided the ram to die in the place of Isaac. God has provided his son, his only son, his most beloved son for you to die in your place. He tells us this over and over again in scripture. So, so listen to Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Second Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he... God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved, but God, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the one who satisfied God's wrath. Friend, if, if you are to be saved, then in faith you must look to the acceptable substitute that God has provided for you. And believe upon him. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that Jesus lived for you. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Believe that he became the willing and obedient sacrifice for you. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins as your substitute in your place. And believe that he was raised from the grave on the third day. Not figuratively, but for real. He got up. Turn from your sins. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the substitute that the Lord has provided. Now you see, in verses 15 to 19, the angel of the Lord called again. And Abraham returns to the men again. And what ties these verses together is the keeping of promises. God assures Abraham that he will keep his covenant promises. And Abraham kept his promise in verse 5. And he and Isaac, they returned, just as he said. God's reassurance that he will keep his promises to Abraham and through Abraham to the nations have been further explained in what we've read. The seed, the promise to Abraham here, harkens back to the seed promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The son who would come and crush the head of the serpent, possessing the gate of his enemies, having victory over his enemies, and bringing blessing to the peoples of the earth, would come from Abraham's line. And in light of the New Testament, we can see that this is how God will bless the nations of the earth through a future offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who will not be spared death, but save many from death through his death. We have the privilege of seeing that God has kept his promises to us in Jesus Christ in the past. He has provided in the present, and we should trust God to provide for the future. This is what our third and final point are all about. Follow along as I read Genesis 22, verses 20 to 24. 
Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jitlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehosh, and Makkah. Now, I wonder what you make of these verses. Do you find them to be a strange genealogy tacked on to the end of a gut-riching section of a wonderful story that teaches us that we can trust God? Perhaps you think that this is totally disjointed from the narrative. I mean, some scholars think that Moses just uses genealogies to demarcate new material. I don't think that respects Moses as, at all as an author. Perhaps you notice that Rebecca's name is there, included in verse 23. Maybe you think that Moses is just preparing us for the marital union of Isaac and Rebecca. That's part of it. But that's not the main point. And the main point of this section, of these this genealogy ties directly to what we've just considered. Beloved, think about it for a moment. In verse 17, God has just told Abraham that he will surely multiply Abraham's offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore. That's a lot of sons. God has just promised Abraham a lot of sons. But in this genealogy, we're told that his brother is having a lot of sons. I mean, Abraham's brother is multiplying sons like rabbits. It's ringing in his ear. And there is Abraham standing with one lone son. How are we going to get from Isaac to a great multitude, to a nation? How are we going to get to offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore? The same way that we got to that one lone son in Isaac, by trusting God to provide and bring his promises to pass, by trusting God to bring those sons about. Think about the people of Israel listening into this story. Remember the wilderness generation making their way into the promised land. Imagine them sitting around at night around their campfires, seeing all of them lit up. They would have been amazed that out of one son came so many sons. And it was God who did it all. I mean, you might think to yourself, well, this guy Nahor, right, since he's having so many sons, he's surely going to have some staying power in the biblical storyline. Well, let me ask you, how does the song go? Remember the Sunday school song? Father Nahor had many sons. Many sons had Father Nahor, and I am one of them. That's not how the song goes at all. No. God didn't make a covenant with Nahor. He didn't promise to send the Messiah through the line of Nahor. Here's the next test of Abraham's faith, actually. Because, beloved, there's almost always a next test. The next test of Abraham's faith is to trust that God will bring the fullness of his promises to pass. That he will provide the answer to this perplexing situation. As he sees his brother have sons and sons, he wonders, how's the Lord going to do this? You see, what's past is prologue. You've trusted God for this one son. Now trust him for the many sons yet to come. What's more, trust him for that saving son who will indeed fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 and crush the head of the serpent in sin and death. 
Trust him for that saving son who will, as verses 17 and 18 says, possess the gates of his enemies and bring blessing to the peoples of the earth. Right? The gates of hell cannot prevail over the church because the Lord Jesus has accomplished the victory. The people of Israel, as they're hearing this, they would have to trust God, not just for the many sons, but for the messianic son. The fulfillment of that promise that still lay ahead in the future. The kingdom of God starts so small, beloved. And it grows because God is growing his people. In part through the testing of their faith. And through God proving himself faithful. Like Abraham, we can look back on God's history of faithfulness to us. Like Abraham, we can and should trust in the substitute that God has provided. For our tests in the present and in the future, we can look back and see that God has provided. Like those doubled train cars resting in the middle of the bridge, you can lay as much weight on God as you can muster. You can lay everything on him. You should lay everything on him. He won't break. He can't break. Our unbreakable God has made unbreakable promises to us. So when he tests your faith, trust that he has provided in Christ and will provide in the present and the future. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, will give us all things that we need. He will give us himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your love toward us in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, pictured and portrayed in Isaac and in this sacrifice. Father, we give you thanks for sparing Isaac and for not sparing your son. Father, we give you thanks that the Lord Jesus got up from the dead. Father, give us resurrection-believing faith. Help us to lay everything on you and find you worthy of it all. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.